Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the December 2023 or 2024 Muni Outlook edition of Masters of the Universe. I'm Eric Kazatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence and joined by Karen Altamirano, also of Bloomberg Intelligence. Our guests today are three local men who have very differing takes on the municipal landscape for next year and in some cases hope that their calls for the year ahead are not dashed by unforeseen forces once again and crammed into the final two months of the year as we've just seen. In no particular order, we are joined by Peter DeGroote, Head of Municipal Research and Strategy at J.P. Morgan. Vikram Rai, Head of Municipal Strategy at Wells Fargo, and Mikhail Fu, Head of Municipal Research at Barclays. Gentlemen, welcome. We're happy to have all three of you here once again to talk about the year that was and the year ahead. So we want to start off with you know, a question that we did the last few years, because I think it's a, it's a good opportunity for us to sort of reflect on the last you know, 12 months or so. So we'll go around the horn. Basically, which of you three feel that you got 2023 the most right in terms of how the year played out for municipals, whether it was a credit call or your total return call or a curve call? We just want to go around and, and sort of reflect on how the year went for each of you. And we'll start off with Peter for this one. Uh, thanks very much, Eric, and, and thanks for having us on this call. Um, so. Fortunately, and, and I give most of the credit to our economics team and our rates team, uh, we've had a, a couple of good years in terms of forecasting in the tax-exempt bond market. Again, it, it all begins with our echo call and, and then the follow-through to the rate environment. And so um, last November, right, um, actually November 2021, we forecast tax-exempt supply of about $330 billion. Uh, we think we will land right at about that number. So um, it's sort of fortunate in terms of uh, the way that worked out, because as you know, right, a lot of things have got to go right uh, for uh, to get a number that's that accurate. In terms of taxable supply, we were looking for about 45 billion full year. We think we're going to end the year at about 40 billion in terms of total taxable supply. So again, uh, you know, very fortunate in terms of uh, the uh, that particular uh, forecast. And uh, it is worth mentioning that that taxable muni forecast does include both corporate issuance and taxable muni QCIP uh, issuance. In terms of the forecast for total return, uh, while it has been an up and down year, uh, on balance, uh, our call for risk rewarding or uh, as entitled by uh, the you know, the, um, the uh, our outlook for 2023, which was flipping the script, uh, yeah. that sort of worked out uh, fairly well, right? Uh, so uh, we had sort of focused on this buy the dip mentality. And we said that broadly speaking in 2023, risk was going to reward. So our call for longer duration uh, worked out uh, extremely well, uh, particularly in, Very much so. yeah. in, in November. Uh, right. Uh, and our call for triple B and high yield outperformance also uh, performed uh, very well, yeah. uh, again, by virtue of um, of what we've seen uh, over this past month. Now, uh, in terms of net supply, uh, we're going to come in 
uh, very close to the 47 billion in net negative supply that we were expecting. Uh, we did uh, ha have, uh, we were fortunate in calling for sort of that, uh, that spring pause in the market. And then that uh, October, uh, you know, uh, blow up, if you will, uh, in the space in terms of uh, recommending this buy the dip mentality. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, fortunately for us, uh, it, uh, it did sort of work out uh, the, the way we had expected. In terms of 2024, uh, we're looking for supply to go up to a uh, tax exempt supply to increase from about this 330 mark to about 350. Now that uh, 350 in tax exempt supply would be about 6% higher than this uh, our anticipated full year issuance uh, this year. Uh, and, you know, sort of a mixed bag. A few things are going to uh, sort of affect supply to the upside. And we think those things are, uh, you know, the uh, pent up demand from several sectors in the market, healthcare, higher education, the yield space, which was down 30 percent in 2023 on a year over year basis and down 65 percent from a trailing five year average perspective. So a lot of pent up uh, demand there. We think inflation also affects supply to the upside, will affect mm -hmm. supply to the upside next year and then of course there are the projects that we think are going to come to fruition from the spate of legislation that we've seen uh pandemic related le legislation that we saw 2020 uh, in 2020 and 2021 so uh we think those sort of affect supply to the upside but uh, we also think there are some mitigating factors uh, one of the major mitigating factors is uh, that issuers will be paid to wait in uh, 2024. That is, in a secular declining market, we expect the uh, that issuers may uh, feel that uh, every quarter they wait, every month that they wait, uh, broadly speaking, they uh, will uh, potentially access the market at, at better levels. So well, I think we're um, now pricing in, what, six cuts for next year? I, I think according to work, something along those lines. So you, you may turn out to, to be correct just yet. So, all right. I mean, certainly like left us a lot to sort of digest there. Um, hard act to follow, but Vikram's going to try his best. Vikram, what did you get wrong last year? What did you get right? Okay, Eric, uh, I have a long list of what I got wrong and a very short list of what I got right. Okay, so I wish I wasn't following Peter, but well, <laughs> this is what has been sent my way. So on issuance, uh, so I have changed firms this year. I'm sure all of you know. So uh, my my forecast for 2023 was at Citigroup, and I had predicted uh, 450 in gross issuance. And uh, the net supply forecast, I think, was uh, about plus 60. And I started at Wells Fargo in September, and I had the good fortune to revise my forecast down. So my corrected forecast was 380, and it looks like I'll I'll pro it looks like the overall number may not even hit 380. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the issuance forecast is off. And I'll tell you honestly, I didn't I did not anticipate this kind of rate volatility because like Peter correctly said, rates do have a role to play yeah. in the in the overall issuance number. So so issuance for two thousand twenty three I got that wrong. Now as far as the rate moves are concerned, like I said, and I, I, I didn't expect this kind of a sell off, but now where we wind up now, it's very easy to say that well, okay, I got the rate call right. But again, I don't think the last week matters. I don't even think we should count the last twenty four hours because yes, 
that bailed out my overall return call. But when I started the year, you know, it, things were looking bad yeah. until about November. So that's that's where uh, where supply and returns uh, are concerned. Uh, on the demand front, I, I guess demand is easier to predict uh, uh, because you know that if there's a if there's a sell-off, there'll be a mutual fund outflow cycle, and of course, of course, we discussed that in our, in our outlook for 2023 and 2024. And uh, the ETF footprint continued to grow. Uh, and it didn't grow in leaps and bounds like it did in 2022, but it continued to grow. And SMAs kind of held steady with their assets. I think the bit that I got right was more about demand. I, I, I had expected that banks will actually reduce their footprint in the muni market, which is which is which is happening as you see. Yeah. And uh, the banking crisis that happened that only exacerbated their their uh, the, the reduction in this footprint. And we all know where, that, where that's happening. I mean, all, all of us follow that uh, the, the, the supply and demand patterns very carefully, but the regulation is onerous. And I think something that regulators, I mean, it's very easy to say, okay, the banks didn't manage their interest rate risk properly, but it's hard to manage, right? So credit risk is understandable that that was what we faced in the, in the financial crisis that was caused by credit problems. This was a rate problem. So if we have onerous regulations, uh, push down upon banks, especially GSIPs, then banks will continue to to reduce their footprint in munis even further, right? Sure. So that's supply demand return. And for 2024, uh, my forecast was issuance. For issuance, is 425 gross, and uh, 450 is the upside scenario. If we if we see a surge in taxable issuance, which is of course very rate dependent. So here I have given myself some bigger room. Because I've learned from my past mistakes. Then give yourself a range so that you have an out. Uh, so that's, and then see, I think uh, I differ with Peter on, on net supply a bit. Our calculations are so, it's a, it's a very simple back of the hand calculation, which is always played out. I see 400 gross issuance as steady state, meaning the net issuance kind of winds up around zero if the, if the gross issuance is 400. And then anything after that, you know, so at 425, I expect to see net issuance of about plus 67. And again, that's depending on the tax exempt taxable breakout. But for now, I expect your usual that taxables will account for, I think I have, let me put it up, taxables I have uh, at 44, tax exempts at 381. So that's for issuance. Returns, honestly, Eric, the we had our outlook conference yesterday at 2 p.m. So I I was speaking. I started speaking as Chair Powell started speaking. At least when the Fed came out to release, and I felt like I was walking into a buzzsaw because the market's just rallying when I was speaking. I was, I was saying how I was worried about higher rates. So yeah. I think the market has gotten ahead of itself. I I I heard. I listened very carefully to carefully to what the chair said and looked at the dot plots and yes, the inflation numbers. I think the last mile is going to be very hard. So getting down from seven to four percent inflation was easy, or eight to three percent. Getting from three to two is going to be hard. So I stand by our rate call in some sense, and I think we have rallied too much, and we have borrowed from next year's returns too. So return-wise, and this is a concept that actually Mikhail taught me that you look at everything in in, in break-even terms, right? So break-evens meaning that you know how much cushion is there for next year before returns turn negative, and okay. we don't look good. 
in that respect because we have rallies and we have no cushion. So my return numbers, I'm worried that I'll have to update it in January, right? But as of now, and let me, since I have my outlook in front of me, let me tell you, I have, uh, my apologies for the delay, I have returns kind of around in the 2 to 3%, right? If you're lucky, right? And uh, if you rally, then of course it's higher. So I'll stop there. Yeah, that's great. And then last but not certainly not least, our, our resident uh, snowboarder and ballroom dancer, Mikhail. <laughs> what went right last year or, or this year? And what are you thinking for next year? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the great uh, introduction, Eric. So um, I think the best call that I had last year was on total returns for high grade. I really should have played the lottery when uh, when I uh, put that return call. So I had the high grade index return at five percent. So it seems that that's roughly where we're going we're going to end up. I cheated a little bit on high yield, um, so going to the year, because a lot of people were projecting that, that we're going to have a recession, so I thought high yield returns will be slightly less, but we typically do like mid-year outlook um, in July, um, and that's where I changed the forecast, and again, I kind of hit it right now. Pretty close where we're going to end up. I think we're at 7%, so pretty much close where the index is right now. Uh, same with supply. I was a little bit high on issuance, and we, um, uh, like we put together tax upon tax exam. So my number was 400 going to the year, but we downgraded that number to about 365, 375, and I think that's where roughly where we're going to end up um, this year. So things that I got, um, you know, aside from cheating a little bit on high yield and um, and, and supply, um, uh, I think things that I got a little bit wrong on, um, um, on on ratios, I did not expect that ratios will end up really where, you know, unless something happens in the next couple of weeks, that will probably end up at 60% or even maybe in the high 50s. I did expect quite a bit of volatility. Clearly, the big thing sort of on the economic front, um, you know, is at least our guys uh, projected that we're going to have a recession that did not happen. It seems that most people, including us right now, in the, in the case that we're not going to have a recession next year, so it's going to be maybe uh, like a slowdown for like a quarter or two, but um, really, we're going to sort of accelerate in the second half. Um, uh, and, um, I mean, roughly like, you know, in terms of spreads, I guess we expected spreads to tighten it. They tightened a bit. So I think those things really, you know, kind of did not see anything like dramatically wrong that we kind of like the way we kind of called it this year on demand. I guess one of the big things similar to what Vikram said, um, I mean, we did expect banks to, um, sort of, you know, continue to like step away a bit. But clearly, they had the, the, the banking crisis earlier this year um, changed um, a lot of this, sort of like put it in the perspective, and banks like were much more aggressive on sort of like trimming their mini, um, um, uh, <coughs> municipal exposure, and that probably will only accelerate going uh, into next year. Now, quickly um, about next year forecast. You know, surprisingly, typically we're uh, we're off of the crumb. You know, just I'm not sure what happened, but we're kind of in the same ballpark at this point. So my returns uh, for next year for high grade, it's about three to three and a half percent. And the main reason, clearly, like the same that we had a quite a strong rally. Uh, we effectively, you know, what, what happened in December and what might happen in the next week or so, um, we're effectively borrowing from next year's returns. In our call, um, that rates will actually be higher by the end of next year. I'm talking about uh, treasury rates on the Barclays call. So even if it doesn't happen, um, you know, there's not as much cushion and effectively in 
go into next year, investors effectively will be lucky to 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 make their um, uh, their coupon, maybe with a little bit of excess return, but you know not as much really because at this ratios, one of the easiest call I think to make at this point. So when you're trading you know, like you know the ratio on the tenth, let's say like you know 59, 60 percent, I'm pretty confident that we're going to have uh, you know by the end of next year ratios will be higher. So um, that's sort of an easy call to make, I think, uh, at this point. So in terms of supply, uh, we do expect um, um, probably about a 10% increase if we end up in sort of in 370 camp, about 10% increase, uh, uh, and uh, most of it, I think, potentially more if we're going to have some uh, refunding activity back, uh, and that will really depend on like where rates will end up. So as I said, like we're not calling for rates to really dramatically from current levels. So I'll stop here. All right, fantastic. So it sounds like everybody got some some things right at least. Um, Mikhail, let's let's stick with you. What surprised you this year? Was it that fund flows didn't return? Was it the about face and performance that we saw start in November, or maybe it was something else? I think the biggest thing, really, and it's it's not just me. I think it surprised the whole market, and not just me. Is basically the banking crisis. So that happened in May. Um, I don't think too many people saw it coming, and clearly the effect it had on our market and like selling of munis by banks, and clearly there, <coughs> there are a number of failed banks that actually had to um, uh, trim, uh, have, have to liquidate their muni positions. So I think that clearly put some pressure on the market um, in the first half of the year. So that's probably the main thing that surprised me. Um, I think I was probably more positive about the flows. I mean, it's it, it's easy to understand why flows and did not come back because I mean a lot of people concerned about duration, and uh, you know they were concerned pretty much for the whole year. Um, and when you have T bills at like five and a half percent, why would I take that risk? I would much rather put money in T bills. So I think that will change next year. We 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 will look for positive inflows um, uh, next year, but it might not happen you know, until later in the year rather than sooner. But I think, as I said, going back, the biggest thing for me, the biggest surprise was the banking crisis in the first uh, quarter. Peter, let's go to you next on that question. And I just want to pivot off something that Mikhail said, right? He said that people were sort of fearful of duration, but as you pointed out earlier, duration and you know, to a certain extent, lower rated credit for some of the best performers in 2023. So I want to sort of get your take on what surprised you and, and sort of the, the comment that people might have been a little bit fearful of duration. Sure. Um, and it, it continues to surprise me, by the way, the bifurcated nature of our market. So the uh, one to 10 year, you know, I'll, I'll generically sort of describe it, uh, one to 10 year double A or better, but call the most liquid portions of our market how well uh, that performs, how rich that segment of the market is relative to the longer portions of our market, the longer and more idiosyncratic portions of our market. And that's because of the, uh, something you mentioned in the, in, in the question that uh, we have not seen yet the systemic return of open-end inflows. When that happens, that's when the market outside of that most generic, most liquid, most the, high, the highest quality structure of the market, that's when those spreads will collapse and co collapse on a systemic basis, we believe, in 2024. So things like AM, AMT paper, short call paper, uh, healthcare paper, uh, higher ed paper, these some of the sectors that have gotten beaten up a little bit. That's where we think there'll be some spread compression for the, for, uh, you know, the, 
better uh, picks, if you will, or uh, at least open-end fund investors will be paid for their credit expertise in picking strong credits in, in those sectors. Um, the other thing is, that surprises me is the volatility with which uh, ETF inflows uh, creates in the market or the volatility that ETFs create in the market. So even in a longer term sort of secular bear environment, there'll be pockets of I'm going to call it euphoria, but uh, there'll be pockets of significant demand for municipals on a week-in or week-out basis or a day-in, day-out basis. So you might have one day within a, a bear market or one week within a bear market where uh, you can't find bonds, and uh, you'll see it. You'll see a significant rally, only to bounce back if uh, you know rates go up and and ETFC outflows. Yeah. And Vikram. What are we thinking here? What surprised you this year? Well, Eric, the, it was uh, okay. I, I have to tell a joke. Okay, it's a quick one, but <laughs> you, you, you knew what you were getting into when you when you yeah. when you brought me on. Okay, so it's a bull and a duck were friends. Okay, and this was in rural India. So the bull would plow the field, and the duck would sit on the bull's back and give the bull company. And then in the evening, the the duck would go to a bar and brag about the field that he plowed, okay? And he was sitting on the duck, on the bull's back. So it would be over beers and he would brag about, oh, today I did one and a half acres, next year the two acres, right? But it was the bull who was doing the plowing, the duck did nothing, right? And it's the same here, that we are, we are muni people, right? But we are sitting ducks where the rate market is concerned because we are riding the bull. So if you get your, your rate called right, everything falls in place. And if mm -hmm. you don't, if you get your duration call wrong, everything is off. So my duration call was off. And honestly, I mean, if you look at if you look at the economic forecasts, and with due respect to all my competitors, but I think most self-side economists, most self-side rate strategists, they got the rate call wrong and they got the rate, their their GDP call wrong. So the forecasts are much lower than actual data. So that surprised me. And because my rate call was was incorrect. Everything kind of fell in line with that, right? So, so again, like I said, I still stand surprised at how much we're rallying. And I think there's a bit of a short squeeze which is going on because the market in general expected that the chair would come in and not validate the rally that we witnessed until last week, but mm -hmm. the exact opposite happened. And I think there'll be some whiplash. Right. I think there'll be some whiplash going forward because you've seen this happen over and over again that if you rally too hard in December, there's a correction in in, in January and vice versa. And it looks like we are seeing a repeat of last year and 2021 Correct. this year round. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, couldn't it be a new normal where munis can have nice things in December, right? I mean, just because we can look back at a period 10 years prior to the pandemic and we've seen softer December performances led to stronger Januaries. It could be possible that things are different now, right? Well, yes. Uh, I, I agree. So, so supply and demand-wise, yes. January will be the same. That There won't be enough supply, so technicals will support Correct. munis. But, but but tell me, Eric, that even if technicals are supportive of munis, and that, this goes back to my, that we are sitting ducks, even if technicals are supportive, if the rate market is selling off, we'll still have a lousy month in January. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I feel like at least there's some buffet with our market. And, you know, Mikhail, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. 
it seems that every time we we slightly cheapen that the the bid sort of comes out from under a rock and we sort of find these buyers who are sitting in the shadows um you know for most of this year right so even though we're seeing sort of pockets of credit degradation in certain areas california being one of them it seems like there's a certain nonchalance from buyers who are just wanting to not pay taxes what are your thoughts on that so the question is like where do we get these buyers or the question is like you know what uh you know <laughs> what what will change so i mean i'm a little well, i guess you know, my, my yeah. question really is yeah. Communities, communities really get meaningfully cheap before they go sort of get beat back down to richer ratios, right? I mean, I would probably take a slightly different um, tact on it. I think our market is really, we have a bit of a herd mentality. It's sort of easy to be sort of like long in uh, in, in November, uh, late November and December when everybody's sort of on board. But if we, when we were at the end of October, and when we're looking, I think at the time I was just looking at it and just said, there's no way we can get to my 5% year-to-date uh, forecast for high grade. I think the, the return on the index was like minus 2% or something. So nobody was buying bonds, and bonds were cheaper. So yes, ratios maybe, I think I read the highs from, on 10s were maybe like high 70s. Yes, they were not higher than that. But I mean, they, people were not coming in and just buying them. I think to me, it's a lot of it like herd mentality. So, and I think we don't have as many trend, um, as many trendsetters, mostly trend followers. Uh, mm -hmm. And the main reason for that is that typically you have trendsetters would be some of the institutional investors that will be either banks or insurers and they all on the sidelines for, for various reasons. Or it could be funds, and funds were really struggling with effectively with outflows, and they were doing for the most part they were trying to sell some of their investments, you know, some like shorter calls that would be extremely unpopular this year for a good reason, and effectively reposition and get a bit longer duration. But we didn't really have any uh, trendsetters, with with the exception of maybe SMAs, and that's why the front end was so was so rich, it really did not get cheaper than that. And when you look at sort of the 10-year part of the curve and the 30-year part of the curve, let's say we'll, be, we'll end up, you know, today or tomorrow, we'll be like in the high 50s, and we're still going to be in the mid-80s, um, you know, on the 30-year, right? And when we look at 21, we were in the low 50s or mid-50s on 10s, and, you know, in the 60s on, 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 on 30s, meaning that the curve was much, much flatter. And why it is not right now? Because you have this SMA buying in the front end, and they're the main trendsetters. And really, there's no not as much um, interest in the long end, and that's why it's really, like, being cheap at this point. So I think to me that's that's the main reason. I mean, we do have buyers, but they sort of like, you know, herd mentality prevents them of sort of like getting when things are really cheap. We have crossover investors, but typically crossover investors get in when minis are really cheap, which they were actually were not cheap this year. They were cheap last year. So at that time, we saw them some crossover investors, but really don't have as many trendsetters at this point. But when flows turn, which I think it will happen at some point next year, well, we could see um, um, mutual funds leading the pack, in my view, but probably will happen later than sooner uh, next year. I want to go back to what Peter uh, said about open-end funds earlier. Should we expect positive funds to return in 2024, or should we not rely on this metric as much as we do, given the trending move into, into ETFs and SMAs? And Peter, you can take this question first. Great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, two things uh, on, on that topic. Uh, one is in terms of uh, the the 
in October, right, uh, the preponderance of our conversations with the investing universe, uh, with open-end fund clients uh, in terms of open uh, the portfolio managers and traders, they 100% recognize the opportunity in the market from both an absolute rate standpoint and from a ratio standpoint and from a spread standpoint. The bad news is they didn't have the inflows and the capital with which to take advantage of it. So uh, I don't uh, I, I don't think it's so much that uh, our market uh, and particularly open end fund managers uh, in particular are not trendsetters. I just think that they're driven by flows, inflows and outflows. And when they have the capital to invest, oftentimes our market is rich and rates are lower. Right. Uh, that's by virtue of uh, the nature of fund flows, open end fund flows. When you're in a secular bull environment. And rates are declining, inflows, NAVs are positive, and inflows happen. Positive NAVs beget lower yields, better NAVs, and more inflows. So you you end up in this virtuous cycle, which is exactly the opposite of what we saw in 2022, right? Which was when outflows, rates are going up, NAVs are going down, outflows are happening, outflows cause lower NAVs, right? And the, the cycle goes the wrong way. So uh, this year, our expectation is for rates to be lower. And as uh, folks said on the phone, we expect that to be somewhat mod- modulated by the fact that we've had such a, such a significant rally since the end of October. But next year, we're still looking for 5% returns in the uh, IG space in, in munis. And we do think that ultimately, at some point in time, the Fed is going to indicate that their next move is an ease, and they will in fact ease. Our view is that we see an ease of 25 basis points beginning in June and 125 basis points of easing for the full year, and that will bring back a inflow, systemic inflows to the open-end space, which is going to collapse spreads, make the long end richer by comparison relative to where it is today, and we're going to see this sort of more uh, an environment that's more similar to 2020, uh, 2021 than uh, the outflow environment in 2022. You guys, you guys put out a report or a survey on SMA assets. I want to say it was sometime late spring, early summer. And if memory serves me, I believe that you guys estimated that muni SMA assets at that time were close to 900 billion. We did a, a similar survey at the end of last year, we were at 750. So you're seeing a positive growth trajectory there. With that many assets into SMEs, and obviously a cost differential between SMEs and open-end funds, do you think that we're gonna continue to see a shift there? And does that sort of feed into what you were just saying? You know, Is the investor's mindset a little different in 2024 as far as paying fees? So in my view, they are two different uh, type of investments. So uh, the SMA for the and munis are munis. So uh, investors give capital to municipal bond market for capital preservation, asset preservation, and tax-exempt income, right? But I I would submit that uh, the SMA investor is generally – more risk adverse, right, yeah. than uh, a long-term open-end fund uh, in, in investor, right? And the way for the long-end fund to differentiate themselves, because 
by and large, fees are wider, are, are larger, right? To differentiate themselves from an ETF and from an SMA is for addition to take additional risk, to garner additional spread, and to have a performance delta, positive performance delta, right, uh, relative to those investments. So I think that you that while no doubt uh, ETFs and SMAs are capturing market share from open end funds. I think that you'll you will still see a significant amount of inflows into open end funds next year or whenever this secular bull market occurs, and that uh, open end funds will still uh, aren't um, in a position where uh, we won't where uh, their you know their the investment is um, you know is past its time so to speak. Vikram, let's move to you. Same questions. Are you are you expecting positive fund flows to return in in twenty twenty four as well? Well, so it, it it's it's very rate dependent, and I just on the SMA assets. So the curve is very conducive to SMA returns, right? right. Typically, as you know, SMAs buy inside of the seven year part of the curve, and right now with the inverted curve, the returns are very good. So the SMA should have benefited in this environment versus versus funds. Now, I just don't see that 900 SMA number, right? Meaning that they have 900 billion assets. I see them around 720. And yes, I haven't called all the 200 SMAs, but we call the top 50, and that's a sense I get. We extrapolate from that. So, and it's it's very unlikely that funds lose 50 billion and SMAs gain 150 billion. It's unlikely. Yes, SMAs have an advantage because it's harder to pull out money from SMAs versus funds, where it's just a click of a button. But I think, so in terms of returns, I, I would be surprised if we saw uh, funds underperform SMAs but that much. I think they'll be, it'll, it'll be close. And again, yeah. it's very rate dependent. Now on the ETF question, see the, the, so I think we should not conflate SMAs, funds, and ETFs. And I think any large money manager should offer all three alternatives, right? So I don't like the question that's posed to me often is that, you know, do you think SMAs will grow at the expense of open-end funds? Well, maybe they will, but overall, the, the, the money manager complex should benefit. And ETFs, it's not so much about fees. See, that's more, that's more an equity story. In ETFs, it's about trading costs. So ETFs are gaining and increasing their footprint for two, two key reasons. One, there is no credit stress in the muni market at present. So the concept of a passively managed ETF is comfortable for them. And again, I... When I say a passively managed ETF, I think I'm not being fair to ETF managers because index selection is an active process. Mm -hmm. And secondly, when you look at the transaction cost of large ETFs, it's very compelling you know, versus you know, buying in the odd luck market. So the transaction costs for ETFs have gone down, and that's why they have also been able to increase the footprint. And so there's no tra price tra transparency there. So yeah. I think SMAs long-end funds and, S and ETFs will have somewhat comparable returns next year. Now, the only reason that I think SMAs will be able to do better next year is the shape of the curve. And I think Peter alluded to the fact, too, that the long-end funds, they, they depend upon long-end returns. And the SMAs, if the curve remains inverted, they should be able to do well because it's just higher, higher absolute returns towards the front end of the curve. And Mikhail, lastly to you, and, and I, I would also add to that question, as rates go down, and Peter was thinking along the lines of 125 basis points in, in cuts, that's got to help leverage for these open-end funds. So, you know, is that going to sort of help 
you know, boost them ahead of the other two alternatives next year? So I think in terms of returns, and again, it's a little bit harder for me to say because, I mean, our call that we're not going to have, you know, what is that, like 125 basis points um, in cuts. So I think we're much more measured in our outlook. But I think in the assuming like that, that um, you know, we do have 125 basis points. So, yeah, I mean, that's clearly like everything will be, you know, directional, at least like great in our market. We're going to see inflows, you know, as I said, probably later than sooner. You're going to have, you know, in my view, they're going to have some flattening of the yield curve because that's what happened in a previous uh, situation when the yield curve was steep and, you know, suddenly you have like money flowing in and you're kind of looking at the shape of the curve unless you restrict it with, uh, with duration. Why would you really invest like, you know, in the part of the curve where SMAs made the, uh, the curve extremely flat? So you need you really need to extend. And that was the call last year and uh, we continue to like the long end and we think the, the curve will flat and that should help um, uh, mutual funds. So one other thing, since we kind of like talk about sort of demand, where else demand can come from. So first of all, I kind of conflate all this um, sort of buyers that we discuss. It's really like retail in some shape or form, right? So we have either funds or SMAs or ETFs. Really, it's all it's all retail in some shape or form. So the and the other institutional investors, as I said, like banks and insurer, insurer, insurers, they probably will be on the sidelines for various reasons. While the only other um, investor group that I kind of see um, getting more active in our space is foreign investors. Foreign investors, they really were on the sidelines for most of the year, and the main reason to me is the cost of hedging um, that were um, quite high and sort of prevented them really, like from from investing in our market to a large degree, we already saw for, for anybody who kind of following um, our hedging costs versus euro, for example, that already changed in the second half of the year and we saw uh, more interest from European investors. Now, really depending on what um, um, the Bank of Japan will do, and I'm not calling um, you know currency uh, trends here, but kind of objectively if we're kind of looking you know at, uh, at the Fed potential to start cutting and um, Bank of uh, Japan will actually have to start um, hiking at some point, so that should that benefit um, you know the you know the basically the, the, that should benefit yen and should decrease the cost of hedging uh, uh, in yen and Asian currency in currencies in general. So we could see more interest from Asian investors as well. So more overall, as I said, in addition to other investment groups that we kind of discussed, we could see more interest from foreign investors in various shapes and forms, you know, and they could provide uh, more support, but more from the taxable market, which, you know, we don't have as much issuance to start with at this point. But other than that, back to your original one, so yeah, I see more inflows, I see uh, funds potentially outperforming SMAs, and you know, we, we, should, we should see a pretty decent year. It really depends on, like, what we'll rate do next year, and that will depend on, like, what kind of returns we're going to get. All right. Well, it's good to hear that you think more foreign investors are going to come into the fold, and it is exciting to hear that you're priming your employer for your big travel budget for next year as well. So that's always good news. Correct. <laughs> and we help in the air, air, um, airport sector, right? Exactly, right? You have to do channel checks. Of course. I get it. I understand all right, I want to pivot over to credit, and this question will first go to Vikram, since I believe you were the one who said um, that we, we don't have a credit problem. So we had published our California primer this week, and that was based off of the recent announcement that they're reporting a $68 billion budget deficit. 
So with California being the leading indicator um, of the U.S. economy, do you see this concern bleeding over to other areas of the municipal market? No, so fair point. I mean, so we didn't have a credit problem this year, right? Next year, next year <laughs> is a different story. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So, and, and again, I, I still won't categorize our credit problem because we are a high-grade market. And so when I say credit problem, meaning that we won't see distress. Will we see a widening of spreads for high beer and Of course we will. So California, for instance, see, so typically when California comes out and says that we have a budget deficit, I, mean, I can barely contain my apathy because they do that very often. Right? They are very transparent <laughs> and they're very good at managing expectations. They're, they're very sophisticated issuers. Now, they just need to get their audit done on time. <laughs> that, that's true. And this time, this time they, they got their expectation completely wrong. It's not their fault. It's because this, of the of the IRS. The IRS get, get extended their tax deadline, and that's why they couldn't they couldn't see the numbers in time. Now, the impact, the, and, and I think you you mentioned this too somewhere that the impact will really be felt more more for the school districts because one notion that many buyers have is that okay, as California paper cheapens, the the, the geos cheapen, the state geos cheapen, let me buy the school districts uh, because that diversification. It is not diversification because California school districts are different because they get ninety percent of their aid from the state government. So when there's the budget deficit, it's every man for itself, and so. I expect that California to balance its budget. They'll have to make some very hard decisions. And I I would expect that they will do cost shifts, right, and, or, you know, which they do very often, which they have to. Uh, so a revenue raise can be done via higher taxes, and that can be that, you know, they either in the past, the net operating loss, for instance, they limited it, or they would limit the cap on, on tax credits. If they don't want to do that, then they'll have to make harsh cuts like, you know, the Prop 98, the Prop 98 uh, funding levels to bring it down to the constitutional minimum, which will, which will, for which they'll have to cut the per pupil, uh, the, the the per pupil uh, allocation. So, like I said, harsh decisions, but I'm sure they'll find their way. I mean, they always do, and it's a high beta state, so they have revenue volatility. So, yes. so going back to to, to my earlier point, uh, Karen, that yes, you know. When I say we credit problem, meaning that no distress and that you know you don't have to roll up your sleeves and worry about workout for 95% of the credits in the muni market. Will they be spread widening because we have high beta credits in the market? Absolutely, right? We are potentially looking at a recession. I, I'm still I'm still optimistic that we won't see one next year, right? But I've been wrong before. If we, if a recession comes, right, the the tax collections lag. So we don't see it immediately. We won't see it next year either. We'll probably see the tax elections lag in in in, in 2025 rather than 2024. And property tax collections generally don't dip. It's income tax collections. So we'll see spread widening in anticipation. Will we see a dip in collections at the local school level? Not really. Not so much. Yeah. Peter, what are your thoughts? What are the pockets of stress for next year? So. Uh, Agreed that uh, revenues will be on a downward trend, but I think you have to take that in context of where revenues had risen to, right, in uh, 2020, uh, 2022, let's call it. Very so um, it, naturally, uh, state and local governments have had significant increase in revenues over the last two years, given two factors, one pandemic aid, right, pandemic related aid and trickle down from the federal government. And then two is far higher tax receipts than they had anticipated. 
And in the case with cities in particular, they had actually cut spending on a year-over-year -year basis in anticipation of lower taxes, and they got the opposite, right? And they're ple pleasantly surprised. So I, I think clearly on a year-over-year -year basis, you're going to see lower receipts, tax receipts at, at the governmental level. But you have to consider we're coming from a very strong position, one and two. If you look at those revenues relative to the five-year average or actually even relative to pre-pandemic levels, you're going to find that those revenues are higher. So we, we don't necessarily, in my, in, our, in my view, we're not necessarily going to have a revenue problem. We're definitely going to have uh, you know, this correcting or writing of the budget, which happens on a, in every cycle. right? So we can expect to see in the mid-year, and as the as budget figures, as the revenue figures start to come in, that issuers and state and local governments in particular are, are going to cut their spending to match revenues, and hopefully uh, will um, continue to perform at uh, very high levels from a credit standpoint in the municipal bond space, like, like as we've uh, come accustomed. In uh, the higher ed space and in the healthcare space, we think that uh, at the margins for uh, weaker credits. And for smaller credits and uh, credits that uh, don't have the significant amount of, uh, let's call it, a fundamental credit, a strong credit, credit fundamentals, right, uh, that those credits are going to potentially struggle uh, next year. But when we talk about spread widening, uh, oftentimes it's not as much connected to the to the overall credit environment, which again, downward trend, as it is to the fund flow environment. So to the extent those are countervailing trends, so uh, credit uh, revenues trending lower, budgets uh, under more pressure, but open-end funds seeing inflows, you can see spreaded compression despite uh, the, uh, rather spread compression, right, uh, despite the credit pressures increasing in the market next year. And lastly, uh, Mikhail. Yeah, Mikhail. So with the news this morning that there's a, a bull loose uh, on New Jersey transit, closed down all the traffic, is that a sign for investors that public transit is back? I don't think uh, the public transit is back, but I think... Uh, we probably, and the areas that we're concerned about public transit, let's say, we're talking about San Francisco as potentially like one of the problem areas. I think maybe things are improving, but maybe not improving as much as they should have. You know, and I always like when kind of like in my travels and sort of anecdotally, I kind of think that like what we see here, what's happening on the on the East Coast and what happened in New York is slightly different than that happens, uh, you know, what happened in the aftermath of the pandemic um, yeah. uh, from the rest of the country. So one thing uh, is uh, I don't have as sophisticated and funny jokes as Vikram, but uh, I do have my funny uh, phrase about this that like as a good strategist, you ask me a question that you want me to answer and I answer an absolutely different one so we didn't talk about we didn't we didn't talk about elections and i think what will happen in november I was coming up next on. i do promise okay. <laughs> all right so I, i'm gonna just steal it let's do it let's do okay. it we're pulling it forward like performance okay know. so but 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 let me get the you know since you will have a question separately that let me get back to one thing i just wanted to mention that we when we called um our um default actually one other thing that we got right our uh, default outlook for this year uh we were in this sort of like one to one 
and a half percent range, and the same thing mostly will happen next year. And the sectors that are actually defaulting, pretty much the same sectors that we see under pressure next year, is mostly living um, uh, CCRCs, um, some projects, some low-rated higher ed. Um, um, universities and and things like that. So I think to me that's that's the this, these are the sectors that will remain challenged next year. So healthcare is a little tricky because it's not clear if we have turned the corner or not. So clearly there's like sort of have cross currents and public transit as well. So I think public transit will be really on hit and miss in certain parts. You know I think the the likes of the MTA and whatever we see like you know toll roads on the, on the east coast. I think that's sort of all in a much better shape than, you know, sort of other parts of the country, as I said, like San Francisco. Um, um, and, um, you know, the public transit system in San Francisco, I think, will continue struggling for the for the foreseeable future, in my view. Vikram, a little twist on this question, right? I want to focus on higher ed for just a second. And specifically, there's been some sort of, uh, I would say, buzz in the New York City area about making some of these tax-exempt institutions um, pay property taxes. Uh, it's a very big deal in some cities, Philadelphia, one of them, where, um, you know, there's almost 32% of the ad valorem assessment is tax exempt because of the uh, universities. Do you, if New York is successful there, do you actually see that as something that could be implemented in other places? Well, Eric, I, I saw that news article and uh, see, if that happens, that will be the, that will be the, beginning of the end of the tax exempt market, right? Because higher education, I mean, if, if they are not truly really tax exempt, meaning that they have to pay property taxes, then, you know, then, then that'll work its way up the chain or down the chain, whichever you put it. Mm -hmm. I think that that it's a knee-jerk reaction because there's a lot of anger against university presence for inappropriate remarks in the press. You saw that, obviously. So I think there is some of it, some of that triggered that, and maybe that that backlash to say, okay, we'll make them pay their fair share. Right? I don't see that happening, but if that does happen, and remember, in Pennsylvania, for instance, in Pennsylvania, if Pennsylvania wants to wants to garner revenues, right, they are still sitting on the second or third largest shale play in the world right and they don't even they don't even do gas tax meaning that they don't do, they don't they don't have severance tax for natural gases they have an impact fee so there are other avenues of revenue right versus going after property taxes that higher education institutions don't pay so i don't think that's going to materialize but if it does then that will have an impact for other education institutions in the country, definitely. It will not be limited to New York. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But I mean, but higher education, they they're very successfully have navigated the taxable immunity market, right? So I mean, even if that went away, they have avenues to access the capital markets. I I, I don't disagree at all. They are very sophisticated issuers. And if and see Mikhail mentioned that you know he expects foreign buyers to come back, they'll foreign buyers will come back if you see more taxable issuance. So if the muni market transitions from a more tax exempt market to a more taxable market, in the long run it's actually good for the market because we'll diversify our buyer base. But the taxable issuance does cost more. We know that. I mean that's why we saw thirty five billion dollars worth of tenders this year because they did all these taxable advantage funding that could be that needed to be tendered back then because the ratios didn't make sense. So yes, right. of course, of course, they'll have access to capital markets, but it'll cost more. That's all. Yeah. Peter, the the twenty twenty four election is most likely the biggest news story 
upcoming. What are your thoughts on how the mini market is impacted depending on the winner? I think that the biggest impact is going to be consternation as we start to approach the as we start to get closer to the election dates. So I think the the fact that uh, we now understand that uh, there is, we have very limited limited visibility and ability to predict the outcome of elections is going to cause issuers to sit back and and well sort of different issuance patterns in the market you know one is we'll see a significant amount of supply hit the market in october and then uh, which is typically a very difficult time in the municipal bond market as we've seen over the last two years in spades so i think that occurs again right a limited reinvestment capital and issuers trying to hit the market before potential volatility around the election and then two depending upon what happens in the election we might see considerably less issuance in the year of, for the rest of the year while the market tries tries to sort of assess the impact of what's going to occur actually uh, in November. Uh, having said all that, we think that the outcome is going to be mixed government. So we continue to see a go forward environment and granted, and, and I know you you know this, right, that uh, we're a long way away from the election and yes. lots of things can happen between now and then. But in a, in a split environment in Congress and very limited margins of majority in both House and Senate, we don't think there can be uh, that there'll be passage of, of significant legislation to change the go forward environment in, in the muni bond space. So ultimately, when uh, when things settle out, we're in a uh, we're in a, a sort of steady state environment. Expectation is that the Fed will still be easing after the election. So we think that we're in uh, an environment that's conducive to open even in 2025. Right. Uh, an outlook that's conducive to higher issuance and better returns. Mikhail, a little bit of a twist on that question. Coinciding with the election, we have provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, sunsetting early 2025. Do you have any concerns about impact to the muni market, um, specifically with uh, alternative minimum tax? Yep, that's exactly what I was getting um, get into when I started talking about it a, a little while back. So first of all, I mean, not necessarily, and one thing I just mentioned again, um, uh, regarding what will happen with issuance, in my view, as Peter said, uh, issuers will try to get, um, you know, prior to the election because there'll be a lot of volatility. But historically, we kind of look like that um, supply in every normal, normal year is backloaded, meaning that the second half of the year has more issues than the first one, with the exception of presidential years. So when the first half typically heavier than the second halves. And I think that will happen next year. That's why people who think that there'll be like relatively little issuance uh, in the first half, they might be wrong and we might see actually more issuance in the first half of the year and less in the second half. <coughs> now specifically talking about what, what um, you asked me, um, I think realistically, unless we um, have either blue wave or red wave, you have all this um, uh, provisions of the uh, 2017 tax reform that will um, expire in 2026 to 25 um, and going to 26. And realistically, at this point, we just don't see the two parties, you know, getting together and, and being able to pass any type of 
text legislation on a bipartisan basis. So three things that are really like important to our market. Number one is uh, um, the AMT tax. Number two, expiration of salt. Uh, and number three, higher tax uh, brackets. So we're returning to the pre-2017 regime. So clearly, higher tax brackets are good for our market. Um, AMT is not great for AMT debt, and I think that's one of the reasons that AMT debt is trading cheap, is because, you know, we kind of like looked at the numbers. Right now, there's about 200K filers um, uh, of um, that, sub, uh, that are subject to the AMT tax, and that number will go to 26 to 7 million. So clearly, a lot more people will be subject to the AMT, and that's why AMT debt is trading cheap, in my view, at least one of the reasons. Uh, but the one that, that sometimes people overlook is actually salt. And why we're saying that, that um, salt actually, you know, surprisingly or somewhat that people did not pay as much attention, actually it increased quite a bit um, uh, revenues of, of high-tech states, right? So because effectively, like, when, when your adjusted gross income goes up and it's taxed by the same tax rate uh, at the state level as before, so effectively they get more revenue. If you look at tax revenues, by uh, the states, high-tech states, it really increased up to 2017. And that will change, and it will change exactly in the aftermath of softer economic environment, no federal aid, and now you, you actually will see like the effect of salt disappearing. So uh, going forward, I think that would actually put some pressure on um, um, uh, state finances going forward. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And one other thing I just want to add that uh, I think the biggest risk to our market, in addition to like you know stronger economy and higher rates, going to 2024, it's a possibility of a red wave. So um, I don't like talking about the threat to the tax exemption overall because I don't think we will have that. But could we see some of the sectors being affected if um, Republicans would decide, most likely they will, to extend um, uh, the tax reform, um, make it in, in indefinite or at least move it forward for the next 10 years. So they'll need some sources of revenue. And if we remember in 2017, some parts of the uh, tax-exempt market were on the chopping block until they were not, and more specifically private activity bonds, which was a big part of the market. So I think that's probably a big risk, at least for some uh, of the sectors, um, some of the mini sectors, and that's what we should be cognizant of. Yeah. Mikhail, he, he's like he read our questions, Karen. He's, he's like, you're like our secondary host today. Um, <laughs> just to sort of pivot off that, there, there are some in our market who, who traffic in hyperbole and have been out there screaming that the exemption is at threat once again. Are, are you worried? Are we all going to be taxable strategists? No, I, I, I think that's, you know, we like talking about it. It's always an evergreen topic. And it, it's, 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 like it, it's like we start, we enjoy horror movies because we know that it's, it, it's not reality. So it's just, you know, you enjoy it because it won't happen. It's the same thing here. We like, like talking about tax exemption and the threat to it and how it will go and destroy a market. It's not going to happen. But I, I do believe that you know if we do need more taxable buyers. So if there are limits to tax exemption, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. In the longer term, it'll actually bring down the cost of funding. It'll bring down volatility. And we often talk about... Well, you know, oh, look at the rates versus ratios, right? It's, it's very straightforward, right? Higher rates, low ratios, low rates, high ratios. But the volatility in, in the ratio world would decline if we have a broader buyer base, otherwise very retail-centric. So, no, I don't think tax exemption is a threat. I'm sure it will rear its ugly head again. 
uh, the, the, the notion that it's going to go away. And it'll be, it'll be tough to burn, burn, but there's too much demand for it. There's too much demand for tax exemption. Yeah. All right, so we're running out of time. So let's end this on a lighter note. Um, what are you most excited about for 2024? And Vikram, you can, you can take this question first. Wow, you caught me off guard because I'm, I'm, I'm you know, the, the title of uh, my outlook is Waiting for the World to Change. And I'm, I'm a little gloomy given all that's going on in the world. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know. Can you be cheery for a second? It's a holiday edition. Make, Come on. Granted. So, come back to me. Okay, let, let me take Oh, my God. He's, he's, he's the most negative man in the world. Okay, Peter, <laughs> give us something to be happy about. What do you think? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the Fed gave us a lot to be happy about uh, next year. So I'm uh, looking forward to a secular bull market, looking forward to an environment where uh, the Fed uh, masterfully accomplishes either a soft landing and or close to a soft landing. Our expectation for 2Q, 3Q growth is a half of 1% before growth turns up again in the fourth quarter to 0.8%. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty euphoric in terms of a transition in Fed policy. We'll see if that occurs, but uh, looking very forward to an environment where uh, we transition successfully from a tightening environment to an easing environment, and, and the Fed uh, does keep us out of that hard landing uh, scenario. So, uh, and with that, I think there are strong returns in the municipal bond space. I think uh, open-end funds, again, see inflows, and, and I think risk rewards to a very large degree uh, in 2024. Thank you, thank you. Mikhail, what are, what are we thinking here? Well, as, as you said in the opening remark, I'm, we have El Nino, and hopefully there'll be a lot of snow in the, in the West, so I'm planning to take full um, advantage of that by going snowboarding. So, yeah, that's what <laughs> nice. I'm looking forward. On a really lighter note. <laughs> Vikram, take two. You, you have your chance at redemption here. Or you can close us out with a okay. joke. I'm, I'm not going to redeem myself. And I see Peter talked about a secular bull market. I do, I'm not looking for a secular bull market. I think this market was fine. We just don't don't want this kind of rate volatility. But I look forward to an environment slightly higher rates so that the nominal return is higher than inflation. Right. So I don't want rates to ratchet back down to two percent where nobody can make a living. Right. I'm I the soft landing obviously that's that's evergreen. I mean it's it's a it's it's a unicorn that we that we hope for. I've never seen it achieved maybe it'll happen this time but honestly i'm hoping that we see an end to conflict in this world and again i'm, I'm naive right but I'm, that's what i look forward to this year all right very very deep that's thoughts good. right there thank you so much all right peter bikram mikhail thank you guys so much this has been great and we look forward to our meeting next december have a good holiday season guys thank you